It's 1700 in Tokyo, 10am in Zurich, 9am here at Midori House in London and 4am in New York City. You're with Monocle Radio. Monocle on Sunday starts now. And a very good morning to you from London. You're with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Coming up, Latika Burke and Yossi Meckelberg will be here to look at the new weekend's papers. A very good morning to you both. Latika, what have you spotted? Good morning, Emma. Well, fresh, uh, freshly returned from party conferences in Liverpool and Manchester. A piece that has piqued my interest is Marina Wheeler's piece about why she's taken a job with Labour. Marina Wheeler, of course, being Boris Johnson's ex-wife. Wonderful. Yossi, a week that's dominated dominated the news is Gaza and Israel. Good morning. No, no, no doubt it's Gaza dominating the, the headlines in all newspapers, but at the same time also yesterday Sir Michael Caine announced his retirement. Right, wonderful. Monocle's editorial director Tyler Brule will join us from Samaritz and we'll hear from our man in Ljubljana. Coming up from the Western Balkans with me, Guy Delaunay. Dirty buses and dirty politics go hand in hand in Bosnia. A surfeit of Serbian elections and Ljubljana's going nuts over the price of winter snacks. Plus we cross to Turin where Monocle's Carlotta Rebella will tell us about the Utopian Hours Festival. So a busy hour ahead on the 15th of October 2023 live from London. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from London, this is Monocle on Sunday with Emma Nelson. And a very good morning to you. We have a very, very busy programme today. Uh, Yossi and Latika joining me round the table. A very good morning to you, both having had an, an astonishingly busy week, I assume. Yossi. Definitely. Yeah. Probably the busiest week for a very, very long time. And hard to, as well, I imagine nothing has been easy for you today. Of course, it's you know, the one thing to be in front of microphone being asked a question that many of them I don't have an answer, but still need to come with something reasonable. But also the emotional side of it, no doubt about watching the, all, the, all the pictures coming from Israel, now coming from Gaza, and looking at it, and also the sense of frustration that all of this could have been been avoided and we just looked different or behaved differently and, and not wasting 30 years since the Oslo agreement in looking what's wrong with the other side and actually trying to reach a compromise, a working compromise and this would have saved so many thousands of lives. Yossi, you've been focusing on that for the last week. Uh, Latika, you have had to place yourself in a very strange place. You've been doing party co- conferences here in the UK. A bizarre, a bizarre situation. Yes, two weeks ago it was Manchester for the Tories. Uh, it was a reversal this year. Normally Labour goes first and then the Tories go second, but this year they swapped around and Labour was quite delighted with this. Um, Tory conference was weirdly upbeat. I was expecting it to be more like a funeral service. But uh, for those who were there, and it did feel a lot quieter than normal, they were very happy. Uh, But I think what that really shows is that this was all about a future leadership race as opposed to trying to bolster up what feels very much like a, a dying government. Labour, on the other hand, I was expecting to be super ecstatic as they're really now on on cruise control heading into what looks like a likely return to power. Not really the case. It was a much more subdued conference than I was expecting, packed with lobbyists, Emma, packed with lobbyists. And uh, I can't say that was overly pleasant. Um, But of course, overshadowed entirely by the events in, in Israel and in many ways, 
just politically speaking for Labor, that was a blessing because it enabled Keir Starmer to get away with another year of saying nothing, offending no one and uh, winding down the clock on the election campaign. On a much more personal note, you have not one but two cups of tea with you. I mean, it's not often that a guest brings in double sustenance. Either you're desperately thirsty or, as I suspect, it's really darn cold out there now. One, One is coffee, the other is tea. And one of the weirdest things about conference, besides, uh, aside from the participants, Emma, was the weather. You know, usually conference season uh, heralds for me getting back my winter coat out, out of a, the cupboard. This week, I didn't take a coat to Manchester or Liverpool, which is unheard of, and walked around in the north in October uh, just in normal clothes. Weird. Really, really weird. Let's grab a little bit of autumn sun now. Let's head to San Moritz. Monocle's editorial director, Tyler Brule, is there for us. A very good morning to you, Tyler. Have you dug out the wool socks yet? Good morning, Emma. Good morning, yes. Uh, wool socks, not quite, but it, it's funny that we start on the topic of, of socks because it was, one of those, it was one of those days yesterday that I moved from a, a no-seam sock to actually something that sort of rides halfway up, up the calf because we went this week uh, it, from, I was, I was all over Europe this week, but uh, the moments that I was in Zurich, it was still lake time. The lake uh, was, was, was still 20 degrees. I, I would imagine that um, even... 36 hours into what is definitely autumn now, uh, it has probably dropped to something closer to, to 18 or so. But yesterday was a big decision. Do I bring out corduroy or not? And do I put on longer socks? And, and, and both happened. But you know, I was about to say both have happened in our household, the, the longer socks. And, and like you, I was, I was whizzing around a little bit and I, was, I, I stood in Lake Geneva 48 hours ago um, and it was boiling and it was 26 degrees and I have a touch of sunburn and wool socks. So I, my body doesn't know what's going on. Well, up here, uh, and, and I'm, I'm speaking to you from just a little under 2,000 metres above sea level in Samaritz, sun is just coming over the mountains. It was absolutely bucketing in, in the, the lowlands, uh, at least of uh, at least uh, in, in the Zurich part of Switzerland uh, yesterday. But then we came up the mountains and, and over the Julier Pass, and it was glorious sunshine, a little bit windy. And this morning is one of those amazing, amazing uh, just moments that you have in autumn. You've, the lake is still warm. You've got or at least warmish. <laughs> You've got steam rising off the lake, uh, the birch trees, the tamaracks starting to change colour, uh, and the sun is just, just coming over uh, the top of the peak beyond. Gorgeous. It's one of those days where you, in Switzerland you don't quite believe your eyes. You think something quite magical has happened. It's got the impression, though, that, um, look, we're in the middle of October here and we're still talking about travel and, and holidays and, and the fact that this is a, war, a warm destination. This is you know, obviously catastrophic consequences for the climate, but if you're running a hotel, this is, this is something that's an unexpected sort of bonus, isn't it, as they stretch the season out? It's partly that. I think it's, all, it's partly, at least in Switzerland, uh, lessons learned uh, from through, throughout the COVID period as well, when it is so many Swiss decided to stay within national borders for holidays. And, and holidays and, and hotels, I should say, we were generally open uh, throughout the pandemic period. And one of the things that we saw was that you know, properties, they did start to extend uh, their seasons. You didn't have that moment where hotels open in the middle of June and then they close on September 5th and then they reopen just before Christmas and they close down again at the end of March. Uh, you know, what we have right now are, are properties which have really you know, stretched the season. Um, and, and some are actually you know, open now from June all the way through to April. And it, you know, it, it's wonderful because partly it is it is a boost, of course, for the economy. It's great that obviously, and I would say it actually doesn't have so much to do with, with weather. 
um, as much as I think you know, people's lifestyles, of course, have changed, people working remotely. Um, but what it's, what's really good, Emma, is what it's done for the brain drain um, that you have in, in, in so many mountain villages and towns. Because if you're 16, 17, uh, 19, 20, 21, and you feel that your village doesn't have a vibe because suddenly it gets shuttered uh, at the beginning of September, doesn't come awake again until Christmas, you know, that's that's the draw then of Geneva, then Lausanne's and Zurich's and, and, and or maybe places even further beyond. Um, and so now you have this metabolism and, and vitality starting in the mountains. Um, and I think this is going to be something important to, of course, uh, you know, keep the young and hopefully bright uh, in these uh, high alpine valleys. And that's an absolutely important thing to do. We've almost changed the identity of Switzerland. Uh, but the, you, you have been on your travels this week, and you've been in Paris. Um, that is a that is a city which is never short of tourism, is it? it uh, in, indeed. And I think one thing that we noticed, and this, this, of course, has been such a discussion, and everyone's scratching their heads a little bit, saying, you know, where, where are the Chinese? And, and in part, well, the Chinese you know, can't get close to any hotels because we've seen all of America. I don't know what, what it's like. I'd love to see what the... the the spike has been um, for the U.S. passport offices because, you know, we always hear, you know, about these, these classic numbers of how few Americans have passports. Clearly not anymore because you had the collision of, of Chinese Golden Week uh, with uh, U.S. Uh, Columbus Day weekend, and it was just, it was, it was incredible in Paris. It just felt like there was no neighboring countries. It was only the U.S. and and China uh, jostling for knickknacks at, at Galerie Lafayette. Goodness me, I can't imagine. Um, how long did oh, you, oh, you could. <laughs> how, how long did you stay in Galerie Lafayette once you realised that that was going on? I, I just rather innocently wanted to go look at their uh, their, their bookshop. I think on the fifth or sixth floor. Not realizing that that it is literally the epicenter of of knickknackery uh, and every, and every bit of tourist tap that you could possibly want. You, you, anyway, so I, I made a beeline to the French comics, um, bought a fantastic cookbook, and um, I was I, I couldn't even wait for the lift. I had to go walk walk all the way down the stairs to get out. My goodness, tell us about what. Okay, I'll ask you. What's in the cookbook? Why so good? Um, well, the fantastic cookbook uh, called "And God Created Feta," and it's it's by uh, clearly, clearly, clearly a, a Greek uh, uh, cookbook uh, by a uh, a wonderful um, art director uh, based out of Paris. The book is in French, uh, and you will probably uh, even in French see it uh, popping up uh, on Monocle. Uh, shop shelves quite soon because it's just, it's just a fantastic celebration of Greek cuisine. Wonderful. Um, we will be looking forward to when we're nipping down to the Monocle Cafe for a, a sort of sheep cheese based menu just just rocking up in the next few weeks. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what the Swiss will make of it. Um, work, work was taking you to Paris, wasn't it, in a collaboration? It, it was, and uh, a little bit of a, a site visit as well. So, of course, we're, we're definitely moving into the holiday season already, and we are going to do our first ever proper pop-up store in Paris, uh, just behind BHV. So BHV, of course, being uh, a wonderful department store at the bottom of, uh, of the Marais, of course, very well known for probably having one of the best hardware and housewares and uh, the opposite of knickknackery, just a wonderful basement level uh, department where you can find, I, I don't know how many types of step ladders they have, but, um, and everything from, uh, you know, wonderful woven uh, carpet beaters uh, to an array of 
paints and everything. So fantastic um, department store. Just out the back, uh, there is a, a store belonging to a, a great French brand called Tiptoe. Tiptoe, um, a wonderful emerging design company, and we're launching a stool with them. Um, and so that will be part of the, the pop-up, which will run from November all the way through to Christmas. I'm glad someone else has discovered the depart- the the the, um, the, ne- the DIY department of uh, of, of BHV. When I ever go there, I go and hang out there and go and buy box metal boxes to put stuff in. And my husband then goes to the other building, which has an entire building dedicated to menswear, doesn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, well, yeah, exactly. There's there's menswear out the back. Uh, I think a little bit of breaking news. They're going to consolidate everything into that. And this this may not be great news for you. They're booting the women's wear out. So uh, the, the latest I heard, because the store is actually also owned by Gallery Lafayette, so they're really just going to focus on on men. And I think maybe because the women aren't even going up to the women's floor, they're just they're only in the basement, uh, you know, at looking at you know fantastic things for for DIY and uh, general home improvement. Beishvay, you've just broken my heart. And um, right, you you talking about the fact you you haven't just done Paris, have you? You've been to Lisbon as well. Yes, uh, Liz, Lisbon this week. Same story uh, as in as in Paris, though. Um, you know, and maybe um, though, of course, Paris was holding on to summer for for a moment. Summer in full swing, and again, uh, of course, um, the number of Chinese tourists, the number of U.S. tourists, and not just tourists, just the amount of Americans living uh, in in Lisbon and Portugal in general. So it's, it's a little bit difficult to to discern, um, you know, who's got a golden passport and who doesn't. Um, but uh, you would like this. I went on a bit of a, of a discovery moment of, and I'm thinking there's a new book we need to do, which is just called, I think maybe something like old school is the best school or old school is a good school, because there are some amazing classic gems in Lisbon. We're talking, there's so much flambéing going on um, in, 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 a, in a variety of restaurants that, that of course, uh, the ceilings uh, are slightly browned. Uh, and and I, if I just sort of say, Waiters in uh, in burgundy jackets, matching burgundy velour banquettes. You get the picture. I'm there, as long as you don't try and flambe any feta. Um, Tyler, thank you so much for joining us on the line from St. Moritz. The time here in London is 9.14. You're listening to Monaco on Sunday. Joining me around the desk are Latika Burke and Yossi Meckelberg. I don't... There are weeks when you don't know where to begin when it comes to the news, doesn't it? I mean, who wants who wants to go first? Yossi, we, we, you've already explained the sort of the, the hopelessness of the situation. But, but in terms of trying to get your head around it and covering it, what's it been like? Because we have been looking to people like you to, to try to offer some impartial clarity as the world seems to lose its mind. Yeah, and I think for me, one of the issues, we are very reactive. So something happened, then you get obviously many calls from everywhere. Actually, here in this studio, we discuss it so many times, and kind of we have an ongoing discussion on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But most media outlet, you know, this is only when something like this happened. And sometimes I, I said, journalists, why don't you call me when there are no people killed in the in the street and talk to me how we reach actually peace that will deal with the root causes of the conflict and take it from there and convince governments, international organizations, the leaders there, that there is a sense of urgency. But only now, we, of course, there is a sense of urgency now because we see the level of killing and, and, and destruction. But should be a sense of urgency in between conflict and then to deal with the root causes because only this is the only way to prevent the next round of violence and then you you, you go and talk to there is an envoy of peace of almost any country as an envoy to the peace Israeli-Palestinian conflict but they only can tell you that nothing can happen and then comes 
between apathy and despair. And you look at the situation on the ground, not to justify any violence. What Hamas did last, last week is, is, is horrible. It's a war crime. There is no justification, whatever the conditions. However, we know where radicalization stands for, where it goes, where it festers. Why we don't deal with that? This is the great frustration. At the same time, you need to look step by step how you prefer the next disaster, what's going to happen in the next week or two weeks, but never, never lose also sight what is the solution? How do we prevent the other, the other round of violence? I don't think in all my days I've seen uh, such extreme reactions online. I think this is the thing that's absolutely come, for, come ahead, hasn't it? That not only are, are, are positions so entrenched that they're getting deeper and deeper and deeper and you, one, one wonders how on earth you even begin the path to, to even sort of verbal reconciliation. I mean, you noticed, haven't you, Latika, that before we came on air, you were, you were saying that you know, we, we look at Ukraine and, and the Russian invasion of Ukraine and, and the lines were kind of drawn there, that it was like you were either sort of pro-Russia or very, very pro-Ukraine. But this is, this is global, isn't it? Yes, Emma, I think one of the big shifts we've felt this week and perhaps we haven't verbalised as clearly but I think we feel it and know it and sense it deep down is that perhaps we've moved from spates of flashes of conflict around the world to something much more permanent and perhaps we're now in a permanent state of conflict which is a highly depressing thought but I think it's probably true and I think with two wars raging that engulfs our allies, it is now harder and harder to see how we as as societies don't need to start preparing a little differently for this. And yes, Yossi, I agree with you thinking about the solutions to these problems, but many of these problems are perennial, poverty, inequality. And then you add on top of that polarisation driven by social media, Emma, and I think we're in a very dreadful state of affairs and I think that's what we've really felt. With Ukraine, there was some positivity, I think, because we saw the revitalisation of so many post-war blocks, models, institutions, the European Union being, I think, key in that. And then yet you see the reaction this week to Israel completely different. The European Union is another good litmus test, division within its ranks, a complete breakdown between the leadership about how hard and strong they go in their language in supporting Israel's right to defend itself and the condemnation of Hamas's attacks. So I think we are in a state that is very different to the one we entered after Ukraine, and I think it's much more permanent. And I don't really think we've begun to even understand where this takes us. Sorry, Dico. I think conflict is part of human existence. We know that. It's in, in, in many ways, throughout our existence, we try to learn how to contain it. In, in recent decades, all what we know is conflict management. We don't go to prevention. We don't deal with resolution. We don't deal with peace building. We do conflict management. Of course, it fails time and again. Ukraine happened after after six, seven years of conflict management because we can go back to 2014. It should have been dealt with then. then. But even with that, it, we, we, have, we have 9-11. Uh, we, we had ISIS. So there are a lot of and conflicts that take place in Africa and other places, but we ignore it. And I think this is the most important thing, actually, that things that you mentioned. And the UN came first with the Millennium Goals and then with the Sustainable Goals. But instead of concentrating on this... We still look at the world in a, based on a nation state. I would add two points to that. One, I think there was 
a high level of delusion that set in after the end of the Cold War, and I think that was most um, perfectly um, symbolised with Francis Fukuyama's end of history, which I think he's now come to regret. And I think we did actually delude ourselves that war could be quarantined, that, yes, you're right, your conflict exists, but it was easy for us to turn away from it. I think this was something that was only fought in countries between militias, and they, these were conflicts we didn't need to get dragged into. Of course, that changed with 9-11, and then you, you see the American isolationism. The other thing I would say that's a bit different with these two wars is you're seeing civilians massed to fight wars. And I think in the past we thought, yes, conflicts exist around the world, but they are fought by either professional militias or they are fought by professional armies. Look at ISIS. We have global coalitions of armies that go in and crush crush it and then we forget about it move on look at afghanistan we have professional armies in nature that go in and fight it and we can leave once it's faded from our national conversation and i think that is the key difference here we are now seeing civilians drawn into fighting and warfare in a way we wouldn't have thought certainly not for me uh, growing up as a 90s child i don't think we ever thought we'd be back here there is also the fact that the world that we live in now inherently global is a much less stable place because of the fact that you know, if you're going to try not just manage a conflict, but if you're going to strategically try to prevent a conflict from happening, it requires the support from the international community. But the fact is, is that allegiance, allegiances change so quickly nowadays is that you can't actually build any kind of conflict prevention on a, on a, on a, on a steady base. I mean, just look at what's happening with the US and Saudi at the moment. We had a few years ago the US and Saudi were going in completely different directions because of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and the, and the fear of what Mohammed bin Salman was, was was planning for his nation. And then at the moment, I think Anthony Blinken's has gone to visit him. You know, how do you try and even navigate long term through this? Well, one thing that hasn't changed, it's, as long as we live in an international system is based, based on nation state, the national interest takes precedence. The question is how you interpreted the national interest. And the way we see it's the world is very adversary, is, is, is a hostile. And I completely agree with you about Fukuyama. I think it's and doesn't kind of... It was a sedating sort of book for, for, for too long. And then it's a we very won- good way to describe it, sedation, yes. <laughs> and, and then I think seductive and sedating yes. at the same time because it's, it was... Because we want to we, believe it, right? We exactly. want to believe that we're going to live in peace. Yeah, if this world be, be right, you know, we can actually concentrate on the economy and we forget that some of the economic system actually pushes us into war not the other other way around and whether it's on on, on environmental issues it's on on human rights issue and so many so many other issues so in many ways we need to change the discourse we need even to, to how do we discuss politics again when I said we should be united in days like today that we shouldn't deal with politics like it's a football match. I support Israel. I support Palestine. Instead of supporting values, I support human rights, political rights. I support peace, support coexistence, support reconciliation. And instead of that, it doesn't help them there if we all that we are one side with one or the other, instead of dealing with the suffering that ensued if we don't resolve the conflict. We had. Um, I, I was lucky enough to go to Geneva this week to uh, interview Liz Throssell, who's the, the, the spokesperson for the UN Commissioner for Human Rights. And I kept saying to her, how, how are you coping with this? What, what do you do when it appears that the, the basic respect for human rights just doesn't seem to figure in any of 
many, many conflicts that we're looking at at the moment. He said that's the importance of law. That is why we need to have these rules. That is why we need to have these principles. But one sort of got the impression that this was just sort of screaming into the abyss when you realise that, you know, yes, they are... One one um one example of success that she described as was that the, she was she was talking about having some UN um election moderated election monitors in Madagascar, which you know doesn't figure massively on the world scale. But she said what they did is they managed to make the election slightly less corrupt. Mm. And the fact remains, if you do these tiny little incremental changes, then hopefully you raise the bar for everybody. But there was the sense that, oh, gosh, you can't use Madagascar as an example when we're talking about the likes of Ukraine and, 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 and Gaza. You know, there's a very good story I wrote a couple of years ago where the Commonwealth, which is a, a much maligned body, um, ridiculed, I would say, by too many commentators as, as inept and, and pointless, they actually sat down and got uh, the leaders of Kenya to agree that whatever the outcome would be of that election result that they had uh, a few months ago, they would respect it and there would be no violence. And this was agreed, it was behind closed doors, not available to media, but it was agreed in front of enough people who would be able to hold the Kenyan leaders to account. They had to stare these people in the eye and say, yes, I will will guarantee peace, and they did. And I think, yes, sometimes we don't talk enough about the small measures of progress we are making, and we are making a lot of progress. But Emma, I've got to say, on weeks like the last one we've had, it's, I think, entirely reasonable for people to just want to reach for the doona and, and get under there. Doona, I think, is an Australian word. Sorry. <laughs> I think the quilt is what I'm, I meant to say. But all I've wanted to do is turn some trashy TV on and escape. And I feel even more guilty saying that because there are so many people who just don't have that it's option. Absolutely, it's, it's phenomenal. One doesn't know where to spin. Uh, we do need to touch on the fact that um, in Australia... They seem to have made a big old mess as well, don't they, when it comes to a referendum? And what's gone? Explain what's gone wrong here, Latika. Well, what went wrong was that Prime Minister Anthony Albanese put forward a highly contentious idea, which was to create a voice to Parliament. Now, there's two separate things going on here. One is constitutional recognition of Indigenous Australians. Essentially, do you want to write into the Constitution that Indigenous Australians were here first? If you went around and asked every single person on the street of Australia, do you think that's a good idea? Yep, mate, slam dunk. Why are you even asking me? Next question, do you want to create an advisory body of some Indigenous representatives to speak and create a voice that would have the authority to advise the federal government on any policy that could affect Indigenous Australians. And the problem with that is? Well, who would sit on it? How would they be chosen? (laughs) What happens if that body doesn't work? What happens if there's corruption? Whose voice are they representing? If you've ever seen a map of Australia drawn by Aboriginal tribes, it is a beautiful mosaic of many, many hundreds different of colours. The concerns and voice of uh, somebody in far north Queensland is very different to the concerns and voice that would need to be heard of someone in Redfern, Sydney, for example. What all of this comes down to is how can you close the gap? And this is what we refer to in Australia as the gap between life outcomes of Indigenous Australians and non-Indigenous, which is huge. And in many cases, it's actually getting worse despite time going on. So there is a big problem of disadvantage People would love it to be fixed. It hasn't been fixed over many, many decades. And this was one way that some people in the Aboriginal community said, maybe we can fix it with this. Unfortunately, this was put to the people and there was not a lot of detail, including how even this body would be formed, who would sit on it, et cetera, et cetera. 
And the people turned around yesterday and said no. And not only did they say no, they said no way, Jose. It was an overwhelming, emphatic rejection. As we sit now, it looks like this could be as high as 61% no nationally and no state in the entire country voted yes. And that was a surprise to me. I thought Victoria, the most progressive state, would vote yes, but they actually had an extremely high no vote of 55%. So what we have is a situation whereby we are supposed to be more inclusive, we're supposed to sort of face things as they are and come up with a practical solution and yet you can't even get past the, the word go. I mean, where does this leave Australia now? Because everybody will start to look afresh at the relationship between communities. Bitterly divided. And it's one of the great tragedies of this referendum. The opposition leader, Peter Dutton, who did not support this, and you cannot get referendums up in Australia uh, pretty much anyway, but you certainly can't without... Um, without bipartisan support. There's an extremely high threshold to change the constitution. You have to have a national majority and you have to have four of the six states agree. So this is to stop results like Brexit, essentially. You can't just have, you know, 52% of the country say, yeah, that seems like a good idea. You have to really have a considered way to go about it. Um, And so the opposition came out and said, well, this is the referendum we never had to have and all it's done is leave the country really divided. And there is some truth to that. Uh, The Yes campaign were uh, very, very lacklustre. It was very confused in its messaging. And the Prime Minister, who only governs with a two-seat majority, but sometimes behaves like he won with a whopping landslide, uh, was perceived very widely not to have done enough to campaign for this, was not a good campaigner himself at the last election where he just scraped over the line despite a very, very old, tired, ageing Conservative government. And now he heads into a federal election next year, very bruised. And what does this leave for the rest of us, Yossi, if Australia can't even have a sensible discussion about <laughs> something which, in theory, if you do sit down long enough and you and you think about it, then... There seemed to be no problem with this, and now it seems to have made things much worse. Yeah, from afar, we always think about Australians most most sensible people. Yeah, you're a bunch but, of grown-ups, but, 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 but that's, the, not, that's not what I hear, <laughs> trust me. In, in, but, in quieter conversations, most people say, oh, the Australians, they're a bit racist. Yeah, but, 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 yeah, but, but two things. A, since 2016, the word referendum is not a word that I'm using. <laughs> because you see, secondly, not a referendum that goes straight yes or no. It has to be a way more, you know, smarter so the, question. A maybe, a maybe box. Maybe it should be well. too, but something that is have more more meaning. But the third thing, again, I'm but not stretch of the imagination, <laughs> expert on Australia. But when I looked actually just now, the, the indigenous people are less than 4%. Why people are so afraid? What makes people overwhelming to be afraid? Population of 4% that obviously has been wronged for 250 years. And that's... So there's a, there's a couple of answers to that. And it is a good question to ask, Yossi. So I'll try and answer. One, the Indigenous representation in the federal parliament is actually uh, outweighing their proportion in society, which is great. That is the first time we've had that in the federal parliament, and it's a real sign of progress, and that's very positive. So people have clung on to that and said, look, we actually don't need your voice because you're getting elected in huge proportion, and your voice is heard in the, the parliament where you are elected by the people and accountable uh, and can be removed if something goes wrong with your governance. The second thing I would say is there is a very strong view in Australia also that we should not be divided along the lines of race and that actually recognising one race in the constitution separates 
uh, Aboriginal Australians from Australians. And in Australia, there's this song we, we grow up singing, um, We Are One. And the, the lyrics literally say, we are one, we are many. Um, and the whole idea is that there is no difference. So that in itself was a big problem and a big factor for the Yes campaign. A lot of people don't want to see a division between an Indigenous Australian and an Australian because they actually think we're all just one Australian. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Joining me around the table are Yossi McElberg and Latika Burke. And we head now to Ljubljana. A very good morning to you, Balkans man, Guy Delaunay. How goes it where you are? It goes a bit rainy, to be honest with you, Emma. <laughs> uh, we were just uh, complaining before I go on air that it's... Um, Yes, we're well into misty, moisty season here in Ljubljana, and, and people who don't come from this city uh, tend to complain about it, or even people who are from this city complain about it, because we're in a little bit of a bowl here, with mountains surrounding us, but of course that means when it comes to autumn and winter, um, all the dreadful weather just descends upon us, and it can really start to get to you after a while. Actually, I'll pick you up on that one, because I used to live in Grenoble, which was surrounded by mountains, and, and it has a, a the strap line for, for the tourism thing, is at the end of each road, a, a mountain and it's a quote by the, the author Standal, and it was seen as a selling point. Yet after about five months, we all went absolutely bananas. Do you, do you get that feeling that the walls are closing in? Yes, absolutely. It's been it's been a bit better this year than it has been in some previous years. But uh, you know, we can remember when we first moved here and the children were starting school. It was almost like that was the cue for the rain to start falling and for for the days to just start closing in. And this beautiful picture book, um, old city of of Ljubljana that we had uh, wanted to move to, longed to move to, and desired to live in, um, suddenly seemed like a very grey and unwelcoming place. You are from the northwest of England, guy. You are obliged <laughs> to. Take your your uh, as am I. You're obliged to take your weather with you, right? Tell At us least about. We have the sea in Liverpool. <laughs> <laughs> tell us about what's happening where you are, apart from so the rain. I think- I wanted to talk about dirty buses to start off because um, I think this is a fair point of what it's like to live in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina. So Sarajevo is another city which is surrounded by hills and mountains. So if any, as anybody who's ever been, uh, one of the lovely things about Sarajevo when you're there, if you're in the old town, if you're in the old market area, Bascharsha, as twilight is falling, the lights go up around the hillsides and it's one of the most magical uh, experiences you can have in, in an urban centre. Just it gets to me anyway. Um, but but Sarajevo still suffering from being in the capital of this ethnically divided hodgepodge of a country, uh, which is racked with political dysfunction. And I think nothing illustrates this quite so well, for, for today's purposes at least, by the fact that I came across a news story a few days ago saying that uh, the ex- the car wash or the washing machine for the city's trolley buses is back in operation after 15 years. So that's that's 15 years of, of dirty trolley buses um, because somebody couldn't be bothered to get around to actually fixing the machine that washes them. And, and that's, that's really emblematic of the sort of dysfunction you get in your daily life if, if you're a citizen of Sarajevo or, f- f- for that matter, anywhere else in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Well, I'm assuming that it's the outside of the buses that hadn't been cleaned, or has just no one cleaned the inside of a bus for 15 years? Because, frankly, that's well, the bedbugs of Paris will be sort of thinking that this is their next holiday destination. I have to admit, I've never been on a trolleybus in Sarajevo. I've been on many in Belgrade. I've been on trams in Sarajevo. And I can tell you that they're not particularly sanitary. And again, they're, they're, they're a sort of hodgepodge. There are other cities' cast-offs. So you find um, old Dutch trams 
um, creaking around on on the the there are the wobbly rails of Sarajevo because they've been donated. The, the, the Dutch didn't want them anymore, so the Sarajevans have got them. And of course, they don't run terribly well. We've got all these ridiculous layers of government, like I was said to people: three presidents, fourteen prime ministers, uh, two uh, ethnic entities. It's no wonder that. You know, somewhere down the lines, things are siphoned off, sliced off here and there, and the actual business of you know, looking after a city, looking after a country, just doesn't get done. So we have clean trolley buses, but so you, you mentioned a slightly mucky, um, well, well, complicated world of politics. Mucky, I'm not quite sure. Um, what's going on with that? So I mentioned these ethnic entities, and so we've got the the Federation region, which is where most of the Bosniak Muslims and Croats live. And then we've got Republika Srpska, which, uh, where the majority are ethnic Serb. Uh, so these regional governments actually have a lot more power than the national government, which is weak and generally useless. And the president of the Republika Srpska is a man called Milorad Dodik. And if you follow the region, this is a man who's just a headline generator, a one-person headline generator, because he's generally agitating for some sort of secession or independence for Republika Srpska. And he's been doing this for years. Generally, the, the 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 general thinking of people who follow these affairs is it's it's all cover for him to just enjoy power and enjoy the fruits of that power. He enjoys dividing, controlling, and profiting. Uh, but he's in court tomorrow, and he's been brought up for ignoring the decisions of the international high representative because there is still one in Bosnia. You know, people probably remember Paddy Ashdown holding that position a couple of decades ago, and the current incumbent is a German politician called Christian Schmidt, and he has made various rulings over the past year, which Milorad Dodik has ignored, and he's now up in court for it because it's been made a criminal offence, and he will be entering his plea tomorrow. And this will be very interesting to follow this trial because it will illustrate to what extent the international high representative and the national institutions, which is to say the courts, have power over these extremely powerful um, regional ethno-nationalists like Milorad Dodik. Uh, finally, let's talk about the price of chestnuts. That's a, that's a subject that's burning a hole in our newsrooms here in, uh, in, in the United Kingdom. So please, uh, tell, us, tell us all. Well, this is one of the advantages of, uh, of autumn and winter in Ljubljana, Emma, is, is the chestnut store vendors come out to play. Uh, how do you feel about roast chestnuts? Right. Um, that's such a, co- a complicated question for me uh, because I was once violently ill next to a chestnut stand and uh, as a result, every time I f- smell chestnuts, then you get ah. quite... It's quite a visceral reaction that comes from me. I bet you weren't expecting that, but yes, ches- chestnut, that. chestnuts I, I, are a I, I, thing I, for me. <laughs> so, so I was expecting I the usual thing of, you know, they, they, they taste like a roast cotton wool and things like that. I mean, that's the usual complaint, isn't it? No, um, they make you me know, violently the, ill. So. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> they make you violently ill. And, and to tell you what's making people sick here in Ljubljana is that that the price of these chestnut concessions, because you, you get these little green huts which have got enough room for somebody to stand inside and have a brazier out front roasting the chestnuts, they, they have an auction for them from the municipality for each of these pitches around the city. And uh, the most expensive one, can you, uh, well, I've put it in my, my briefing notes for you, so this is, if you've read them, you know already, but how much do you think for the winter months um, the maximum price for one of these uh, chestnut stalls might, uh, what, what's the maximum price one of them's gone for? Well, I know the answer to this, so I'm now going yeah. to throw it open to the floor with Yossi Meckelberg and Latika Burke uh, being asked. Just, Guy, just briefly repeat the question for, for our guests. Again, the price of a chestnut stall 
you know, to, to operate one in the centre of Ljubljana, in Presheren Square, uh, which is smack in the centre of the city, how much would you have to pay to operate, how much would you have to pay the municipality to, for the privilege of operating a chestnut stand throughout the autumn and winter months? Natika, you're really thinking about I'm this. I'm so glad you've asked this guy because when I walk across the bridges of London, uh, from North London to South London, across the Thames, and I see all these vendors, I'm always wondering this. How much does it cost them to sell their nuts? And like, do they actually make any money when you're selling them for kind of a pound a cup? You're buying mm-hmm. for time here, um, Natika. I need some I need Look, some I don't know because literally <laughs> this has always plagued, plagued my, my wonderment. Um, I guess Maybe what a couple of thousand pounds. A couple of thousand month? pounds. How about you, Yossi? Yeah, how, so how often have you thought about chestnut vendors? It's clearly, but it's clearly yeah. something Latika loses sleep over. I do. It, I it, do. It, it made me think now, but probably I thought two, three thousand euros. Okay, so it's, and it's a few. It's, we're, we're sort of on. We're, we're on the two to three thousand. We're under ten thousand euros here. Here, mm-hmm. guy, and and we're and it's a good few months that you've got. So so um, I wonder whether these guys are under pitching it. I've seen the answer. Um, yes, guy, help, they are. Help us. <laughs> So the starting price for the auction was nine thousand euros, and the, the winning the winning oh. bid was fifty one thousand five hundred. What? what? That's wild! How do you Quite make money? That's a <laughs> lot of chestnuts you've got to be selling. What's a portion it is, of, isn't it? A portion of uh, chestnut. What's the price of a portion of chestnut? It's, it's about three, three euros for a small cone and four euros for a large one. Okay. We're gonna Can have anyone to... do the math? <laughs> I, I'm 17,000 17, portions of portion chestnuts. in order to get... What, over three months, would you over say, Guy? Months. Yeah, but that's just to make your money back that you've pitched for the concession. And it doesn't include staffing, production... Or the heating. Uh, all materials. Or the yep. price of the chestnuts. Costs, yeah, or the chestnuts. It, so it's uh, it's 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 nuts. I think you were talking. <laughs> Very well played. <laughs> uh, but uh, the, the, this particular auction, it's being replayed this week on uh, the nineteenth of October. So that's what? That's Thursday, isn't it? They're actually redoing the auction for that particular stand because there was funny business. We had a chestnut war um, in, in Ljubljana. <laughs> Truly. And uh, the, 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 the winning bid for that particular stand happened to have a restaurant on the square from which they also sell roast chestnuts. And the other bidders complained that they just, uh, you know, put in a high bid to queer their pitch. So they're going to rerun the auction on Thursday. My goodness. You've, got, mean, you've must... got better things to do. You really have, surely, in Ljubljana. <laughs> but it must be lucrative if they're paying that much, if it's so sought after, right? I mean, it must be. It's bizarre, though, because, you know, I mean, roast chestnuts, who'd have thought it would be... I mean, we had the ice cream wars in in Glasgow many decades ago, of course, and uh, chestnut wars in Ljubljana, that's where we are here. But Slovenia was very good in avoiding a war, so now it's a chestnut one. There we go. That's why they're doing it, you see. Guy Deloney in Ljubljana, keeping us up to date on the chestnut market. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle on Sunday. The time now is uh, 9.42 here in London, about five minutes walk up the road from the Freeze Art Fair. Uh, and I'm delighted to say that Aurelia Rauch joins us from our Zurich studio, where the time is just about nudging quarter to 11 in the in the morning. Um, Aurelia is creative director at Burgos Bank, uh, a big friend of Monocle. And Aurelia, you've been to Freeze for us, haven't you? Hey, good morning. Yes, I have been. It was really wonderful. And uh, did you go at all? No, I'm going this afternoon. So yeah, I'm, so basically, we're after a guide, please, Aurelia, because the, <laughs> because the way that the papers have talked about it, have it's not been without its sort of little little rubs. It's not been the giant success that the 20, 20th anniversary of Free should have been. Or are we just getting sort of jaded, cynical 
art, art critics who are trying to be a bit snooty. Well, I guess if you're talking about the main fair, I would agree that it was a bit average and there wasn't, you know, this kind of verve that we had in previous years often where there were really very big hitters and surprises and sort of these incredibly breathtaking installations. I would agree on that front. And I would also say that the prices that we saw on average were not as high as we've had in the past, right? But I would say that it was a really nice fair, generally. And I think that the sales were going pretty well. And I would love to dive into that, too, if you're looking for a bit of a guide, too, that the gallery shows, and especially the auctions, they've passed now, of course, but there were some moments within sort of the freeze frenzy in London that really... You know, they, they really stood out to me. They were really spectacular. So if you allow me to, to talk about that too, I'd love to, Go I'd love for to it. give a, a bigger guide. Go for it. Tell, <laughs> us what you've, tell us what you've won for Burgos's Walls. Oh, my God. Well, I can tell you what I would have picked for Burgess's Walls. <laughs> I couldn't because the pieces were all sold the second that we entered the gallery, actually. But there was a really wonderful show of a younger artist called Eleanor Sordi down at Hetzler Gallery. Um, she makes these insanely, I don't know, dreamy figures of very quotidian workers and something really, I don't know, dreamy about how she treats these figures. I really loved it. First time I've really gotten to know this artist in such... Density. I've seen her work in there, but not in a, in a show like that. And I have to say, that's really recommendable. The work was all sold again as, uh, when we entered already. Well, it was a beautiful show at David Swernow of Louis Ye. Beautiful, small paintings. He's a Chinese painter. Really recommendable. And honestly, my highlight, you have to go see it. It's absolutely a must-see, is the Avery Singer show at Hauser and Wirt. It's, it's spectacular, really. They've gone through great length to show this young artist who lives in, in New York and who kind of treats her memories of 9-11, which she experienced as a, as a young teenager, in the most enveloping way. You really feel like you're, like you're in the Twin Towers. They set up a scene that, you know, transports you into the, into the, uh, the buildings and it's, it's spectacular to see work there presented is, like that. There is a strange thing that happens to the mind when you go to Freeze. You go, it depends which way you do it. So there's Freeze and then there's Freeze Masters and, and Freeze is everything post the year 2000 and Freeze yes. Masters is everything pre. Uh, and as a result, you get the most cutting edge and quite a spectacular and often quite outlandish artworks in Freeze. And then you traipse across Regent's Park through the lovely um, bonkers sculptures, looking at people struggling in their phenomenally complicated shoes to try and get outside in the public, although there are cars, ladies and gentlemen. And then you go into Freeze Masters, and I always find myself in a totally different space at that point. I breathe out. Did you have the same thing that happened to you? Yeah, that's true. I mean, first of all, very quickly, just to, to point out to this, so the gallery shows that I just described, they were actually at the physical gallery. So the show, and to contrast that, what was happening at the fair with the booth wasn't for me quite such a holistic experience, right? There were not that many booths that really dedicated this dramatic installation to the work that they were showing. Um, but to stay at Freeze proper and give you a little bit of a tour there real quick for just one second, I think the Damien Hirst installation, right when you enter, when you get into the main entrance, um, Gagosian is showing that um, definitely you'll, will stand out to you right away. It's flower paintings by Damien Hirst. So really, they were quite quite the eye-catcher to say the least also all sold the second we entered the fair um and there were here and there a few works that really stood out to me and freeze masters i completely agree with you it's first of all that transition through the park really puts 
a moment, right, between you and the artwork and you kind of have this this London experience. I mean, you live there. I don't. So every time I walk from one fair to the other, it's just so beautiful to have the city, the park in this way around you. And yeah, it, I completely agree. It's just a completely different pace and a different vibe. And it's uh, much more tranquil and much more taken care of. And I, I always enjoy the Fries Masters a lot too. Yeah. Oh, really, Ralph, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Zurich. You're listening to Monaco on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Um, has, there's only you guys been to been to freeze this week because it, it just seems to be the absolute opposite of what is happening in the outside world. That while you have catastrophe unfolding on the world stage, you then have this rather amazing. I think Andrew Tuck described this as a fusion of beauty and money that takes place in this in this highly concentrated space. Do you do you, is that something that you go to 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 sort of try and try and escape or, or I mean do you ever go to freeze? I love freeze. Yeah. Um, unfortunately <laughs> I have not I do have a ticket to go but I could not get there this week because of events uh, overtaking news you can imagine. Um, but I was due to go this week uh, so hopefully I'll be able to go in the next couple of days. And this is pure escapism isn't it? I love sculpture. In Australia, we do this amazing um, exhibition called Sculpture by the Sea, where they get given positions on Bondi, and it's on rocks out in the ocean, up on the cliffs, and you do this whole uh, Bondi uh, coastal walk, and it is absolutely spectacular. One of my favourites, I can still see it in my mind right now, hot sand at Tamarama Beach, and there's a big fried egg made that splat on the sand and it was just one of the most wonderful uh, outdoor sculptures I've seen and you see it as you come over the cliffscape and then you look down onto the beach and, and see this fried egg sitting in the sun. It was wonderful. That's when art does make you smile, yeah. isn't it? Of course. It's, uh, it sometimes reminds me why we are here. Not only to deal about with, with wars and the hardships, the daily hardship. It brings smile to it. It makes you think. And that's it's it's about beauty. It's about aesthetics. It's about the dedication of people of doing that. So that's why freeze is great. But actually, in the borough where I live in Merton, there is every year two weekends of local artists, and it's called the uh, Art Walk, and you can go actually to their houses. Well, sometimes in in studios, but certainly in the private houses, and you know they're always sweets there and drinks there. And you go from house to house. There is a map of all of it. And again, it's so beautiful to think that people in engage as someone can draw for to save my life. I I, I I admire people that actually can do that. Thank you very much indeed for that. We uh, we've got a busy program. We're going to go from well, we've already been to San Moritz, we've been to Ljubljana, we've been to Zurich, and now we head to Italy. We're going to Turin because our senior foreign editor Carlotta Rabello is at Utopian Hours, which is a festival about city planning. Your natural habitat, Carlotta. How are you feeling this morning? Buongiorno, Emma. Good morning. Buongiorno. How is Turin? It's actually very sunny and lovely uh, throughout the weekend, uh, which obviously adds to the whole magic of being here at a city festival. You know, it's not just about being in a conference center. We're getting out and about. So we couldn't ask for anything better. You sound as if you are really physically out and about at the moment. Are you in transit? I am in transit and my conditions will change in about 30 seconds as I start being on foot. So you're getting the true experience of what it's like to be uh, in Turin for an urbanism festival. But yes, I'm here for Utopian Hours. Uh, 
always happens in October, gathers people not only from Europe, but from all around the world, talking about um, the issues at stake. And this year's theme is all about a manifesto for a new city making. Um, and we're yesterday had amazing talks by uh, the chief uh, heat officer uh, from uh, Freetown in Sierra Leone um, and the challenges that are happening there. We also uh, were hearing about the war on cars and uh, if listeners recognize that um, uh, saying is the movement that turned into a podcast in New York City to reclaim um, space from uh, automobiles in our streets. So those were just two of the highlight conversations that were happening yesterday and that show you the scope of just how the conference is shaping up. I'm now going to ask you to do that broadcasting equivalent of tapping your head and rubbing your tummy while you get out of a car and try to maintain a conversation live on the radio. Um, so I shall, uh, we shall keep going and tell us if you need a break. Um, but one of the things that we often talk about here in, in when it comes to cities is placemaking. How, how huge a subject is that still? Oh, it's a huge subject. And if you, the conditions now ch- sound different is because I have indeed stepped out of the car. I am multitasking, <laughs> Emma. Uh, but yesterday on placemaking, we had an amazing session with uh, an international panel. So we had Petra Marco from Bratislava and whose listeners might be familiar. She's a regular guest on The Urbanist and works with cities and advocacies to really increase uh, the awareness of placemaking. We heard as well from Scott Francisco. He's the co-founder of Cities for Forests, an initiative uh, that started in the United States and has spread across the world to connect um, urban areas with uh, sustainable production of wood. So imagine if for your placemaking exercise, you might want to deploy park benches and tables. Let's make sure that the furniture you're building actually helps communities. So one such example is right here in Turin, where they used um, uh, uh, sustainable and considerate wood that came from um, uh, the Congo Basin. Um, Another guest that was on stage as well, Bram D. Wolves, he's the founder of Urban Foxes in Brussels, uh, who basically is the charity responsible for um, uh, making sure one of the city's main boulevards is now pedestrianized. It took a decade, but they did it. So all of these people came together to really show how uh, creating spaces with people in mind um, really uh, works and makes a difference. And the sounds that you might be hearing now in the background is a tram skipping through uh, the city of Turin. It's a busy morning. Frankly, Carlotta, I'm surprised and quite disappointed that you not actually climbed on a bicycle now, because that would sort of complete the, the, the whole transport gamut. What lies in store for you for the rest of the day, apart from trying to cram as many different kinds of transport into an interview? Uh, well, so for the rest of the day, we are now going to go on a, a, a royal walk. So this is a new circuit that has been developed by Torino Stratosferica. That is the group that's behind Utopian Hours, an urbanist organization. And they connected um, three parks and uh, areas of the city center that really didn't have an official uh, way of moving around. And that's something that they launched this summer. Um, and it's proven to be a success. People really have engaged with the route that they've planned and this includes you know wayfinding maps all the sort of stuff for you to find out about what you're seeing on the way um and not only tourists but mainly residents have really rediscovered their city by engaging in that so that's what's in store for the morning and in the afternoon we're gonna head over to corso farini this is a an area uh, near the university where um 
a small pocket park uh, that was frankly abandoned and uh, misused, uh, separated the two highways and now has been transformed in an area for concerts and cafes and the population really is engaging with it. So that's what's in store for me today. Carlotta, go and enjoy it. Thank you so much for joining us on the line from Turin. That was Carlotta Rebello, our senior foreign editor. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Latika Burke and Yossi Meckelberg. We've got about five minutes left. No, but three minutes left on the programme. So you wanted to talk about Michael Caine. Quite unsurprisingly, the headline is 90-year-old man retires. <laughs> yeah, he, he's, he, he's, he's a legend. I know most people think about somewhere mid-60s, you know, to, to stop. He retired already before, so this is the second time he retires. But it's worth mentioning, such an icon in British and, and world cinema, 160 movies, movies that got nearly $8 billion, winning the Oscar, the Golden Globe, BAFTA. So, and also someone come very modest uh, background with his Cockney accent, but capable of playing so many different characters. We see some actors that can play in their entire career one role basically in different movies and here is someone over eight decades played and acted in so many different and and, and interesting movies. I think there's something in the water southeast of London, Emma, because <laughs> Michael Caine is a southeast Londoner, as am I. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I went to the Rolling Stones. Well, it wasn't they're really a press retiring. conference. No, they're still going and with force. I went to the launch of their uh, new album, Hackney Diamonds, and boy, they've still got it. I've got to say, I was really, really impressed. There were some really good vitamins being taken at that stage. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure not sure just are. vitamins, but I'll leave that there. I think probably now at their age, it is just vitamins. They must rattle with sort of vitamin B um, what are, and others. Um, I just found that really quite funny that he said that there are no more leading men at, at 90. And I think, what, what a total shame. There's an article at the, at the back of this month's Monocle magazine where we've been to Milan and we've taken photographs of women who walk around the streets who are in their 70s and 80s and they are the smartest, most wonderful women. They're dressed so beautifully. They're so elegant. And I showed the picture to my 86-year-old mum and she said, I want to be, she, you know, I would love to be able to look like that, she said every single day. And I thought, gosh, we need space for aspiration at every age, don't we? Yes, and I think if in, you know, in ancient history the smart, the sages, were the old people, you go for advice. Since the invention of social media, it's only about youth, forgive me for saying that. And it's only about youth, and, we li- and a lot of people are very happy to share their inexperience with us. So we need to find a balance between, between, between those who are, you know, have youth and vitality and bring new ideas, but also listen to people with experience. You know? And as people live longer and longer, to make a way to integrate between both. Do we need to ring Sir Michael and tell him to get back out there? No, I think I think the conversation is changing. Actually, I think you're seeing a lot more uh, people of different ages on TV. I think in some ways it's a little difficult because you're seeing lots of forty and fifty year old superstars who look amazing um, and look maybe twenty years younger out there, flaunting their fifty years of age. A lot of vitamins there as well. Yes, I think, and I think <laughs> maybe a little more, but. Um, yeah, I think it's a conversation we have to have. But I do actually also think it is changing. I think age is being treated with a bit more um, seriousness. And I, I think I think we're getting there. 
I'm afraid time's run out on us today. The time here in London is 9.58. So it's time for me to say thank you to all my guests, Yossi Meckelberg, Latika Burke, Carlotta Rabella, Aurelia Rauch and Tyler Brule. And thanks to our producers, Desiree Bandley and Mariella Bevan. Our studio manager was Mariella here in London. Desiree was in charge of it all in Zurich. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle on Sunday is back at the same time next week. But until then, enjoy the rest of your weekend and goodbye.